This is a special call to action to our listeners to financially support this podcast and spread awareness of the Native Plants Dialogue through exclusive Plant Native Nebraska merch at plant-native-nebraska.myspreadshop.com. Wear our designs in your best effort to convert your friends and neighbors, or just simply look cool. Thank you for your continued support in our quest to help Nebraska plant native. Hello, and welcome to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. I'm your host, Stephanie Barlman. If you are new to tuning in, this show is for native plant enthusiasts, aspiring gardeners, suburban homeowners, growers, and thinkers anxious to learn more about growing Native American plants and creating habitat for wildlife. If this sounds like you, you've come to the right place. In today's episode, Native Edible Plants Part 2, Vegetables, Alliums, and Greens, We chat with Bob Hendrickson about foraging, native frittatas, and some more interesting native additions to your edible garden. Thanks for listening. Um, Thank you, Bob, for being with us here today again to talk about some vegetables greens and alliums because last time we talked about wildflower teas and that was awesome yeah um for someone if they're just jumping into our podcast and they haven't already listened to an episode with you before could you give us a little background on what you do at the nebraska statewide arboretum yeah, sure. I'm the horticulture program coordinator, and I've been here since 2000, and actually the year 2000. So, wow, 23 years now. And uh, as the horticulture program coordinator, I my main function is to grow plants for our plant sales. That supports our nonprofit. Uh, so we kind of specialize in kind of a niche, if you will, uh, uh, where uh, we've been growing prairie plants, wild flowers, uh, trees from seed, shrubs, grasses for gosh uh, 40 years now so uh it's it's good to see that native plants uh, prairie plants woodland plants savanna plants are all gaining in popularity and more and more people are are uh, are following that that lead i guess of the statewide arboretum and and yeah so it's uh, it's fun to grow the plants and get them out there to people and right now i'm swimming in plants because our fall sales are coming up so it's a, it always makes one a little apprehensive that you know, people don't think fall is a good time for planting. And actually, to a lot of people, mm-hmm. fall is the best time for planting. Mm-hmm. And I've heard that, you know, I was just talking with Ben Vogt from Lincoln from Monarch Gardens. And he was telling me, you know, fall is is the best time in, in regards to weed pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're really trying to get ahead and, and give your plants a little boost, plant in fall because you don't have as much intense weed pressure. Thought that was a good yeah, exactly that that's a, the main main reason not only weed pressure but heat pressure you know you can get your mm. new plant think you have it established and all all of a sudden a week of 100 degree temperatures comes and plants not ready yet you forgot to water whereas in the fall it's always getting cooler right sure the daylight's mm. getting shorter but the plant's able to really put its energy into a root system rather than trying to grow a top mm. 
So in regards of what we're talking about today, um, which is basically utilizing these wild landscapes that we're cultivating to be a source of utility in the sense of food stuff. You know, we're, we're looking at our gardens from the perspective that maybe we can utilize some of these plants for food foraging um, or other herbal uses. Why shouldn't we leave food to supermarkets? I know we've talked about this a little bit before. Why should people try to harvest and forage from their own garden? Why shouldn't they just go to the local farmer's market or, or go to bakers and see what's, what's going on there? You know, for these wild edible plants, whether it be an introduced weed or a native prairie plant uh, for food stuff, um, I think what you'll find uh, once you really kind of dive in deeper in being a forager is one is just getting yourself out in nature more often. It's fun to collect uh, from that sense. And the nutrition that these plants provide, I think, is second to none. Uh, compared to the the things we can get off the shelf, as we all know, we get most of our products from you know over a thousand miles away, and it's often harvested not at, at the peak of ripeness, so it doesn't have the peak of nutrition. So if you're foraging, you're getting a plant at its peak of nutrition uh, because of that. You know, it's vine ripened if it's a berry, right, versus a green or whatever. So it's mainly the the nutritional aspect in my book um one and two it's tasty food it's not just so-called survival food it's actually tasty too and more and more of these wild forage plants are finding them their way into restaurants thankfully in fact i was on a site this morning for lamb's quarters and this guy provides in a restaurant with uh with the foraged lamb quarter greens so he's actually making a buck off of them i think he said something like eight mm. bucks a pound or something like that for the for the plant so and also the main reason is it's free i don't know if anybody has uh, checked grocery store prices lately but ouch you know it hurts when we go to the grocery store now so this is a way to kind of supplement your diet uh, add some pizzazz to your diet uh of course you have to include your time involved and you know um you know whatever transportation you use to get to foraging or you're setting it up to forage in your own backyard mm. yeah when you're talking about getting food shipped in from thousands of miles away i was kind of thinking in my head thousands of miles away versus front porch you know right. it's it's like hyper local we always think of shop local buy local Yep. And this is as local as it gets, right, in your back garden or your front garden or your side garden. Um, and I like how in the past you've talked about, too, edible versus palatable. Like we yeah. talk about edible wild plants, but we don't necessarily equate edible with tasty or edible with palatable. And I right. like how you make that distinction. Like not only are these things edible, but either in the raw state or the way we cook them, this food can be made in such a way that is actually considered tasty, delectable. Stuff. Exactly. Exactly. Bingo. Yeah. yeah. And lamb's quarters fits that bill. Yeah. And the thing with lamb's quarters, 
there's a number of seasons you can harvest it. Certainly you can always harvest the tips, but early in the spring, it's better. Mm -hmm. So when the plants, you know, you got to recognize what it looks like when it's only four inches high, right? And once you start harvesting it, you'll, you'll learn that really quickly. And then you just kind of pinch off the top two to three inches of that plant um, to go ahead and use it for cooking. And then, you, you know, what uh, it does wilt pretty quickly. So if you're out in the heat, you know, I'd recommend, you know, if you can collect it in the morning, but sometimes, you know, you off, when you get off work in the evening works fine too. And, you know, if you're collecting in a place that's hot and you're not near the back door, you can always bring out a cooler with you or, or, you know, something to keep those leaves on ice, if you will, or chilled, mm -hmm. uh, certainly doesn't hurt. It's not absolutely necessary. I'm just saying, if you're out there for a long period of time, like say you pick your lambs quarters and you come back to your bag uh, an hour later in the heat, it's probably already going to be wilted just in that bag. So mm. just be cognizant of that, but it's, it's easy to harvest. Um, and cooked greens is probably the biggest use for lambs quarters as a cooked green and kind of the classic cooked green is, you know, a little salt, pepper, bacon, grease, you know, cook it down. I'm more like uh yeah, it's a little greasy product for me and and my wife's a vegetarian i'm mostly a vegetarian so we we prefer olive oil you know or or any sort of you know mm -hmm. sunflower oil or mm -hmm. any sort of vegetable oil uh works fine i just like olive oil because it has a nice flavor right and a little garlic in the added to that really the sky's the limit as to what you add to it and you can also harvest a boatload of this product so say you have a patch that's just huge and you don't want to nitpick and do a meal at a time. Well, you can harvest a boatload of it and then preserve it for later use, which mm. is what a lot of people do with lamb's quarters is they'll blanch it and blanching it. I mean, that's like putting leaves in boiling water mm -hmm. and you can salt the water if you want, but you don't have to, but blanching it for like a minute is plenty. And then you take it out and put it in a cold ice bath to stop the cooking process, drain it well, put it in freezer bags. And uh, I like using quart bags in two cup measurements. So then I know how much is in there. I don't have to remeasure if I'm following a recipe. And then if you put it in quart bags and flatten it out, folks, the easy part is you don't have to thaw the whole bag out for that night's meal. You can just kind of break off an icy chunk of that lamb's quarters. Uh, like maybe you're only using three tablespoons or a quarter cup at a meal. Um, yeah, you would just break it off rather than thawing out the whole bag now for people listening in who maybe aren't familiar with lamb's quarters or are newer to talking about lamb's quarters this is one that that grows up in the garden sometimes can grow very tall if you don't catch it early um sometimes up to six seven feet tall and this is right. one people usually weed out of their garden um, but is actually, um, I know you've told this to me before the second most, like basically nutritious food plant on the planet. Um, yeah. so yeah. something hyper nutritious that's usually weeded out, but has a lot of utility, kind of like similar to the non-native dandelion, um, something that's seen as a scourge, but is actually quite useful. Um, yeah. I know you talked to me before about Kay Young's Wild Seasons, and is is there a recipe in there for like roasted lamb's quarter? I know we talked about that before. Yeah, the recipe for roasting them was not in there, but you could type that in in a Google search, folks, and just type in roasted lamb's quarter greens, and you'll find it. Kay's recipe that kind of turned me on to lamb's quarters was... Um, 
creamed lamb's quarter greens with uh, wild mushrooms. Now, of course, you may not have access to wild mushrooms. I've made it legitimately with wild foraged oyster mushrooms and and lamb's quarter greens. And it's it's just a, I think it's just a creamy bechamel, if I remember right, mm. I, or just a cream sauce, easy to make, right? I think it's equal, a cream sauce, right? The classic is equal parts butter to flour and then like a roux. And then you're adding milk to that or half and half to make it nice and creamy a little salt and pepper your lamb's quarter greens and one thing you'll find like like a typical wilted green like a spinach wilted green you know you start off with this you know a a full uh you know saucepan or whatever uh full of it and then once you cook it down it's a fraction of its original size right and lamb's quarters is the same way you know it looks like you have a boatload here that you're cooking up but then once it cooks down you're like oh okay well this only amounted to you know, I started off with a quart and I only have a cup, you know. Mm. It sounds <laughs> so. good in the cream sauce. I'd like to try that with pasta. Just cook it in it a is. cream sauce as a side dish with pasta. That sounds like heaven. Yeah. No doubt it is. And, and it, it tastes, you know, a lot like, uh, oh, you would be doing a cream sauce with pasta. What would we typically add? We'd add spinach, right? Or, or picture like, uh, what is it? The uh, spinach artichoke dip. Very common. Mm. Uh, you know, sought after product. Lamb's quarter greens is a great substitute for a spinach artichoke dip. In fact, you could make it, bring it to a potluck, have the guests eat it, and then they'll say to you, Oh, your your spinach dip was just the bomb. <laughs> and then you can finally tell them, actually, that was from Lamb's Quarters. And they're like, What? What's Lamb's Quarters? And I was curious enough to look it up, going, why did they call it Lamb's Quarters? Now the quarters mm. part, I'm not sure. But it was often fed to sheep because sheep just loved it, and uh, mm. specifically lambs. Mm. That's a darling explanation for the name, too. Lamb's quarters. Right. Um, nice. And get this. They've been eaten for a very, very long time in Central America. I think a lot of times people think, well, where is this plant popular? And certainly certain cultures uh, use it to this day and will continue to use it. And I've actually seen it show up at a farmer's market or two. It's just hard to keep it looking fresh, you know, because it wilts so easily. So this one, they'll want to harvest it in spring, but mm -hmm. as it matures, it can be cut back and then the new growth can be harvested again. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, and if you miss the whole harvest, now's the time of year, read up on harvesting lamb's quarter seeds because lamb's quarter is related to amaranth and quinoa. Amaranth are, are protein superpowers. And I have never harvested the seed, to be honest with you. I've taken those seed clusters and roasted those or fried those up, but I've never actually harvested them. And there's tips and tricks online for, mm. for harvesting because it's a small seed and the, it can drop without you knowing it. So I think these people will actually tie a pillowcase or something around the top of the plant and let the seeds fall in that way. It sounds like a lot of work to me, but um, I think anything that's the superfood like that is worth taking a look at and seeing mm. if, if you can find an easy way to harvest it. Mexico is where they have the best records and recipes, the most recipes for use as a food crop, which I mm. find interesting too. Mm. That is awesome. And I would have never guessed it was related to quinoa. So I think that's interesting that you bring up that other aspect of it too. Hey, our next plant, um, and this is one you wanted us to talk about. This was one of your suggestions, Ohio spiderwort. 
I know we've yeah. talked in depth about Tharp spiderwort in the past, um, mm -hmm. but Ohio spiderwort, I read online, the whole plant shoots greens and flowers are edible, which is which seems pretty amazing. Uh, we even talked about spiderwort jelly in the past where you steep flowers in honey. That's really cool. Yeah, exactly. And it makes your honey a beautiful color. You could you could just type that in a Google search too and say uh, spiderwort, wild spiderwort flower honey or something like that. You know, the flowers won't add too much flavor to it. It's more just making a really interesting, pretty honey. Mm, mm. It's the young leaves and the young stems when they're emerging in the spring is probably, it's it's another one of those greens, uh, just like the lamb's quarters we talked about. It can mm. be added fresh to salads or boiled for 10 minutes and served with other dishes. Oh, people would uh, parboil the young growth until tender, fry it, and then mix it with other greens. And if you ever, if you have spiderwort at home, you know, cut one of those stems, and maybe you've done this already, folks, where you see the 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 juice inside is very slimy, almost mm. like uh, aloe vera juice. And any time a plant has that mucilaginous juice uh, as a medicinal plant, it tends to coat and soothe. So digestive issues, you know, um, things like that. And then insect bites like a mosquito bite or a, a bee sting or a wasp sting just go, oh, I think I'll try that and see if it helps. Mm. Nature's medicine. <laughs> I just I I find this fascinating because Ohio spiderwort is a very unique looking plant itself. The flowers are very quaint and beautiful, um, like classical kind of beauty. So the fact to me that basically the whole plant is edible. I don't know about the roots. Do you know anything about the roots being edible? Yeah, gosh, no, I don't. Um, but, but I mean, the whole top growth of it, basically, the shoots, the the greens, the flowers, the fact that it's that utilitarian to me um, is pretty incredible. And now, basically, anytime you and I talk about mucilaginous plants, um, it's just such a fun word to say, but also the concept of it is really cool, that we basically have natural aloe vera um, growing in our garden amen and you know spiderwort is one of those plants that disappoints some people because well the flowers don't stay open in the heat of the day and you know it'll, they'll tend to open in the morning or a cloudy day is when you'll see them open and they 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 only last for a day but new ones will come on every day and mm. it's one of those plants that uh, by native americans it was held in high regard and if you were courting a young lady if you wanted to prove yourself as a worthy warrior you would uh, there's a song about the spiderwort that i've seen in a book um that if you were able to cut the flower harvest the flower out in the prairie and bring it back to camp um mm -hmm. as you can imagine wilt really quickly so if you made it back to camp and gave this girl a wilted flower you probably weren't worthy of her but if you were able to make it back in time before the flower wilted that showed that you had uh, strength and stamina uh that's such a nice story. I have to look that up. That's, That's nice. kind of fun. Now, so with spider wart, because I know we've talked about before, you know, aloe has those properties where um, it's even drink, you know, they make drinks with aloe and things like that. Um, did we talk about spider wart soda? I have that written yes. down. 
Yes, we did. In fact, you can type that in too and find this recipe, folks. Spiderwort soda is basically you take a, a mason jar, a quart-sized mason jar, and fresh spiderwort blooms. Um, and you have to collect in the morning, right? Otherwise, but if they're closed up and still purple, you can see the buds still have purple. Those work fine for this recipe too. Mm. So basically you take that quart-sized jar, pick enough flowers to fill the jar halfway, which is around two cups. Uh, uh, drizzle in honey, uh, about three tablespoons of honey, and then add water. You want to make sure it's unchlorinated water. So just get some good, uh, you know, distilled water, um, spring water, something like that. And add the water until the jar is mostly full with a little room at the top, say a quarter inch to a half inch. Cap the jar and let it sit out on the counter for three to five days. The blue color will gradually soak out of the flowers while the natural yeast and good bacteria in the honey will make the soda become bubbly and effervescent. Mm. And so you can basically, as this lady says at this recipe that her kids love to help collect. So it's a great family activity to go out and collect these flowers. Of course, you got to get a patch big enough to get <laughs> a half a quart jar full, but still when you start to see it bubbly, it's ready to strain and drink. And uh, yeah, the cooler, the temperature, the slower it will ferment um it gets and, and if you let it go too long it gets tart and vinegary so you could basically mm. just say well i made a vinegar mm. it's very refreshing drink and of course it it's a pretty uh beautiful bluish purple um it have is. you now have you per, i know because we've talked about what you can do with it have you personally made stuff with ohio spiderwort can you tell us you know, experience. I have, I have not. And, and probably because, and I've got spider word at home. There's really no excuse for me not to do it. I think, mm. I think it's mainly because, well, we, we, we do nettles. We do a lot of nettles. We do um, lambs quarters and, you know, how many greens does one need in life? Right. And so yeah. I think, uh, I think that's probably what's held me back because I've got so many other greens and, and heck, I grow kale too. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. so now they've got, we grow kale too. So yeah, kale's awesome. I'm going to have to try this Ohio spiderwort because the ones I've got growing, I grew from seed this year. And so they're just little babies right now, just barely hanging on for dear life because of this heat um, after planting them kind of, kind of early summer. So I'm going to definitely try doing some stuff with them once they get to their mature state. No doubt. But what else I've got on the list um, is the native alliums. Um, so if people are familiar with growing onions or garlic um, or plants in the allium family, uh, I wrote down the wild or meadow garlic, sometimes uh, referred to as Canada garlic because it's mm -hmm. allium canadense. Right. Um, I read that the bulbs can be cooked or eaten raw um, and that you can even dry uh, dry them and use them as seasoning. Um, so I thought that was kind of cool. For sure. Yeah, yeah. So, so the wild garlic is, they talk about it on a certain program all the time, uh, i.e. backyard farmer. And people will call in and say, how do I get rid of this wild garlic or this wild onion? So this weedy thing that gets in people's yards, which is not Allium canadense, by the way, it's not native, it was introduced, it's become a weed to people, and so it gets lumped as wild garlic. It's not the same animal, folks. Mm. But all Alliums are edible, Stephanie, it's just some are more palatable than others. Mm. 
In other words, you can eat any onion that has an onion scent and not get sick from it or die from it or whatever, but some taste better than others. And I did dig up a little bulblet because I had some of the Allium canadense here growing. I was interested in, there's a variation called Allium canadense variety lavendula, lavendula, something with lavender, right? Well, okay. that one has a pretty flower. So I thought that one might actually go in the trade. And it, you know, long story short, I remember digging up some of it, snacking on the little bulblet that's underneath. It would never replace garlic as a food stuff. Mm. Um, but yeah, you certainly could. And, and yeah, Native Americans definitely used it for flavoring uh, meat and food. Uh, the other, have you tried the other onion, nodding wild onion? I have this one growing in my back shade garden, um, but I haven't, I haven't tried it. I have not. And, you know, it, it actually can kind of get some kind of thicker base down at the, like the, the leaf as it hits the ground. There's almost like these little stalks, if you will. Mm -hmm. um, those stalks or those thickened stems intrigue me uh, for cooking. Yeah. So purple poppy mallow, I was actually looking for it in Native American ethnobotany. And I actually didn't find a like an entry for it as being edible which i found surprising um yeah. so I, I i'm sure there's a reason for that you know when they make these sorts of things there's so much right. they're trying to do and account for and maybe something falls through the cracks right but um i read that the roots and leaves could be cooked and eaten um what do you know mm -hmm. about this one yeah and this one intrigued me many years ago too and and uh yeah i i just plucked a leaf off and eaten it just straight up. It just basically tastes green. It doesn't taste like a whole lot, folks, but um, it, it was a plant that was certainly used by Native Americans. The leaves, if you look at a purple poppy mallow, like other members of the mallow family, so it's in the mallow family, which includes hollyhocks, uh, okra, uh, a number of other things are in that mallow family. Those plants um, are mucilaginous. And when you think of mucilagin or mucilaginous, it's kind of slimy. So when you cut the leaf open or cut a stem over the root, like think of aloe vera, when you cut an aloe vera leaf, it's very slick and slimy, right? That's called mucilaginous. And mucilaginous compounds are known for a number of things medicinally. One is as a topical for burns, right? So think of aloe vera for burns. Well, this one, the mucilaginous part of purple poppy mallow was used as a thickener in soups and stews, so it wasn't so watery. So the leaves are edible. Of course, you can add them to a salad, whatever, but it just, I'll tell you, just tastes green. It's nothing special. Mm. Um, so that's one thing. So the whole plant is edible, Stephanie. The flowers you can eat, you can take a flower off and just sample one and say, huh, mm. really not much there. There's pretty much tasteless, in my opinion. But some people want to have that Martha Stewart moment. Maybe they're having guests over that evening and they want to impress them mm. with their edible flower salad. Mm. By all means, you can top any dish with those flowers and make it pretty. But just know that they don't add much flavor of any flavor, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the root, I think, was the main thing that was used by Native Americans and mm. has the potential as a real vegetable crop. I mean, we're talking a cultivated there's a name of a fella, Samuel Thayer. Uh, Samuel, if you Google um, wild edible plants and looking up information on a specific plant, oftentimes his name will come up. 
because he's written three fantastic books on foraging. Mm. Samuel Thayer, remember that that I name. Will. That's T H A Y E R. So Sam, this is a quote from Sam. A brief acquaintance with this robust root vegetable makes one wonder why it is not one of our best known native foods. Mm. That intrigues me. So the large tapering root, which almost looks like a parsnip, mm -hmm. is edible and it can be eaten raw, just like you would eat a raw potato. But think about it the last time you've tried or eaten a raw potato. Not very exciting, right? You had to add a little salt to it. And maybe you just took a bite. You weren't eating a whole meal of raw potatoes. Well, same thing with purple poppy mallow. It was best roasted or boiled. Mm -hmm. But as, as this one site said, don't bother boiling it and mashing it. It's not the same texture, consistency. I think the best way of eating it is roasted over an open mm -hmm. fire or whatever. Big, big, uh, big taproot on that thing. From what I've read, Native Americans would dig up the root. They would cut the top part of that root off that included the crown of the plant, and they would replant the crown, and it would grow right back again. Oh, much like you harvest, yeah, yeah, much much like you harvest horseradish today. You're digging up the whole root, cut it, cutting off the crown uh, to include some of the root, a piece of the root, and then replanting it. Right. So get this, wouldn't it be cool if somebody was growing a 30 by 30 foot patch for the roots rather than another pretty face? Mm -hmm. Nobody's doing that. Nobody's done that well, as far as I know. To be fair, uh, I added that to the border in my edible vegetable garden. Um, nice. Because I found out, you know, the roots edible. Uh-huh. So I'm planning on, I mean, I love roasting anything, anything roasted. We just, we roast stuff in our oven, you know. Right. Uh, just crank the heat up and, and roast it with some olive oil. Right. So uh, I'm looking forward Amen. to that. Uh, Sweet. So common milkweed. Uh, do you know about that one? So a lot of people think, well, that latex is very poisonous. Well, you'd probably have to eat five pounds of of, of uh, common milkweed to to get really sick from it, right? And I'm not telling you to go drink that latex. The latex is not good for you. Um, and then another thing people are saying, well, if you harvest all this milkweed for food stuff, there's going to be nothing left for the monarch. I disagree. People who harvest parts of milkweed to eat aren't going to be the ones to kill off the monarchs. The people who value milkweed as a food source will be the people most vested in preserving spaces where milkweed grows, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Not destroying habitat, which is the most real killer of milkweeds not the, and the monarchs. So the, the shoots, when they're emerging in the spring, and you have to pay attention. This is one of those wild season things. It's like, is it is it milkweed season yet? Well, that depends what time of year you're talking about. Early in the spring when they're emerging, maybe eight inches high to a foot high. The leaves are smaller. They're kind of clasping the stem. And just look it up, uh, recipes with milkweed shoots. And you'll find out that you can blanch the young milkweed shoots for 30 seconds. What, what is blanching? Just putting them in boiling water. And then you take them out of that boiling water transfer them to a pan with butter and fry or saute them with other ingredients for a minute or so you don't they don't have to be cooked very long the milkweed shoots should not be mushy just like your 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 asparagus should not be mushy when you're overcooking your asparagus same concept and it tastes like a cross between asparagus and a green bean it really kind of mm. it's kind of hard to describe but it's tasty there's recipes online for things like milkweed shoot frittata, 
milkweed shoot and radish salad, roasted milkweed shoots, uh, milkweed shoots that have been dressed with soy sauce, ginger, oyster sauce, and sesame oil, olive oil, and lemon juice. Sounds horrible, doesn't it, folks? <laughs> and then you can actually, you remove the leaves from those stalks, the large leaves, um, the leaves you trim off and cook separately. So you mm -hmm. chop them up and then braise them until they're soft and tender. Well, you can braise them in a chicken stock, a vegetable stock, a beef stock, whatever turns you on to get those leaves soft. And then you you puree them in your um, food processors. You can take that same puree and make up a milkweed spring tart. Um, the, the Winnebago use those leaves to make a what we would call a cream of broccoli soup. They made a soup that, if I remember, was pronounced munch, and that was milkweed leaf soup. Um, the milkweed flower buds, those bud clusters that you see on milkweed before it blooms, right? Mm -hmm. Those milkweed buds, uh, you can steam those until cooked or warm them in a little butter in a pan, throw the buds in raw, cook them until they're hot throughout, season to taste, and, and eat them just like that. Um, they need nothing more than the butter, a sprinkle of your favorite salt and a touch of lemon. You can pickle those milkweed florets mm. and have pickled milkweed florets. Oh, that's you fantastic. Can make, right? You can make milkweed bud casserole. You can make cream of milkweed soup. Uh, quickly blanched and shocked milkweed buds are probably the best way to try them if you've never had them before. So those are tasty. And then the flowers now the buds are gone now i got the flowers the fragrant flowers are strong and sturdy yet tender enough to pop in your mouth so you can try and just eat one fresh and it's fine but make a milkweed flower cordial which is a fruity floral syrup that can do all kinds of stuff with drizzle drizzle it over ice cream the high amount of sugar in the syrup also means that it's a preservative in itself or you can substitute vinegar for all parts of the water in the syrup for savory uses. So you can make uh, milkweed flour vinegar. Uh, mm -hmm. Go figure. There's a recipe online for milkweed flour cordial. And all a cordial is, is milkweed flours with uh, sugar, water, the peel of one lemon. So you combine those ingredients, um, the flours, the sugar, the water, the lemon in a sterilized jar, stir well to dissolve all the sugar. And at this point, you leave the, the cover, you cover the lid, or the jar with the lid. And if you keep the lid on tightly, you must loosen it once or twice a day to allow accumulated gas to escape, i.e. you're burping it like you would make homemade sauerkraut. Mm. So you're uh, so you're basically fermenting the flowers. Mm. And then you can make a syrup by infusing the simple flowers overnight or ferment the blooms to create a naturally effervescent soda, refreshing on a hot day with ice cubes and seltzer. All these recipes are out there online. You can make uh, the, uh, a, flower, a flower or a floral vinaigrette as well, or a vinegar. And the end product tastes a bit like strawberries, they say. But my favorite use for the flowers is as a fritter. A fritter batter is very easy. If I remember a fritter batter, like um, flour fritters are a big thing, but you can make a fritter batter out of cornstarch, flour, and water. It's that easy. Maybe a little salt if you want, but these are going to be sweet, so you don't even need salt. The flowers are dipped into that flitter batter and then fried in peanut oil and dusted with brown sugar. Out of all the wild edible plants I've fed to people, they say oh that's gosh. the favorite. 
Well, I mean, it just sounds unreal. <laughs> right? Uh, oh, and, I didn't even know that was a thing. Flower and get critters. this. Uh. And get this, Stephanie. Now it's done flowering. You got the yeah. little pods on there starting to form. You notice the little pods on the mm -hmm. common starting to form? Mm -hmm. They're hard, maybe about an inch, inch and a half. Okay, walk up one to one tonight or tomorrow, whenever you do it, walk up to one and, and feel it, squeeze it. And if it's hard yet, pluck it off and it'll drip some milk some milk out of the stem where you pull it off and there's a seam in that pod that you can put between your two thumbs and you can split it apart right at that seam and it comes apart very easy and you'll notice the white insides which is basically the developing silk and seeds right pop that inside stuff out and don't be shy shove the whole thing in your mouth the inside not the pod but the inside of it in your mouth and eat it and best to do it in front of somebody to get the reaction because they're going to look at you like you're crazy. So eat, it's, so to eat the silk, pull the yeah, silk out and eat the, the undeveloped, silk. The undeveloped, undeveloped silk. silk. Because the reason I told you to, to touch it, to feel it, squeeze it, if it's soft and spongy, you're too late. If it's still hard, the, the silk and the seeds are so underdeveloped that it, it's not silk yet. So when you're mm. pulling that innards out and eating it fresh, you'll be amazed how surprisingly sweet it is. And I'll do that if I'm out working in the garden and I have a big patch of milkweed and I'm thirsty and I'm too lazy to go get a glass of water. I'll just pop out a few of those things because it helps quench my thirst because there's a lot of water in them too. They're mild tasting, tender, and delicious. Mm. Fried milkweed pods, much like you would do fried okra. Mm. You're taking those same hard uh, pods, uh, soak them in buttermilk overnight, and then fry them uh, fry them after they've been dredged in cornmeal and you've got fried oat milkweed pods or you boil them and you pull the innards out chop those innards up with and mix it with cream cheese maybe you're chopping the innards up and putting it in with some scallions and maybe some fine chopped pepper whatever turns you on that you want in a cream cheese type stuffing and then you put that back in those pods and then you can serve stuffed milkweed pods Wow. milkweed contains what's called pay pain i don't know how to pronounce it it's p-a-p-a-i-n papain is mm. the same natural enzyme as a papaya mm. and the papaya is what they used to make meat tenderizer that you buy in the store so you go to the store and on the shelf is that little red bottle that says meat tenderizer and it may say What's the ingredients in there? Few of us have ever looked to see what it's made out of, right? Well, I was told by Roger Wells it's made out of papayas, the seeds of papayas. Oh, so it's natural. Okay, because they will have that on the jar. Natural meat tenderizer, right? <laughs> well, get this. Milkweed contains the same compound. Papain mm -hmm. cuts the protein chains. Papain cuts the protein chains in the fibrils and also in the connective tissue of meat disrupting the structural integrity of the muscle fiber and tenderizing the meat. That's what meat tenderizing does. It's that simple. The Sioux Indians boiled the young seed pods and ate them with buffalo meat. So they boiled these pods right with the buffalo meat to tenderize it. And Very get cool. this, papain also has a mild soothing effect on the stomach and aids in protein digestion. So not only were they tenderizing the meat, they were helping to digest the meat with that meat tenderizer. Yeah, that's incredible.
it's the cat's meow. Milkweed is a number one when it comes to native, natural, grocery store quality food. Um, so the next one that we were going to talk about today, Jerusalem artichoke, or popularly known as sunchoke, Helianthus tuberosus. Uh, what could we say about that one? This one's a native sunflower. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's kind of aggressive, so you want to isolate it somewhere. Yes, exactly. It's uh, that's I think that's its main problem, and what would hold people planting it is the fact that it is a, a really aggressive plant. And uh, you know, as we like to say, planted in between a rock and a hard place. It's a worthy plant to grow as a food crop, as food stuff, because it's just so fun. And um, just just again, remember. Uh, confined area and maybe you don't have a confined area well you can kind of make that confined area that confined area can just be okay i have my bed of jerusalem artichoke maybe i make it four by four feet maybe it's six by six whatever and then you're surrounding that bed with mowed grass so the mm. plant can't creep into it and then you just never let it go to seed either and usually what i'm doing is I, i'll let the flowers bloom but then once the flowers are done blooming, I might let it sit around for a little while, but then ultimately cut those seed heads off just to prevent any seedlings from coming up. But its main problem is that it it runs by those underground rhizomes or mm. underground tubers is really, yeah, how it gets going. And and I, I like it. One of my re favorite reasons I like it is because it's one of the last things I can harvest as a wild edible or a native foodstuff grower. It's the last mm -hmm. thing I can harvest in the fall, and it's the first thing I can harvest in the spring. Mm. You can't say that about a whole lot of other plants out there in the gardening world. So I'm talking when I harvest it in the fall, I let the top of the plant, and it's a sunflower. It gets tall, gosh, I would say eight to 10 feet, mm. and pretty little sunflower. And then I let it get a hard freeze on it before I start harvesting the roots. So we're talking, it's usually mid-November, depending on our year mid-November mm. or around even up to Thanksgiving time by the time I'm harvesting them. And you can harvest them and store them for a while in the fridge, but I'll tell you, they don't have a very long shelf life in the refrigerator. They don't store like potatoes. So what you do is you harvest that night's meal and then leave the rest in the ground and you kind of use the ground as your, as your, as your potato bin, if you will. So you're just going out mm. there and harvesting enough for that night's meal or whatever. And, and really, I think their best use two best uses. One is roasting them. And number two is pickling them. Interesting. Now, before we've, uh, you mentioned uh, in a previous conversation I've had with you, pickled sunchokes with turmeric, and that really mm -hmm. piqued my interest. So you can pickle these things even. Oh yeah, for sure. And it's again, some of the, the best use for it because it's crisp. It's, uh, I, if I remember right, they're raw. I've only done it once. Um, they they lasted me so long, right? I mean, you could end up, say you collect a bunch of tubers because the plant's so prolific. What am I going to do with all these? I got like, you know, 10 pounds of tubers. Oh boy. Oh, that's right. I can pickle them. So you could have them in that roast some up for sure, but uh, pickling them will help preserve your harvest and easy recipes online. Turmeric was added mainly for the color and, uh, you know, for its antimicrobial, anti, you know, turmeric really good for our bodies as well. So it's a good way to 
get it incorporated into a food stuff in that pickled Jerusalem artichoke. And I've had pickled Jerusalem artichokes, um, chips. They, they, they're basically sliced to look like, uh, uh water chestnuts mm. and, uh, they look just like it, honestly. And then you just do your favorite, uh, vinegar brine, uh, for pickling them spices, whatever you want to add to it, a little heat, little garlic. Um, they are the bomb. They have a nice crunchy texture last for years and years as a, as a, uh, so-called canned product and a great use for them but roasted what i like about roasting them and you can just toss them with coat them with a little olive oil a little salt pepper maybe put some herbs with them some rosemary and sage and uh, go ahead and roast them up my classic is 400 degrees for 40 minutes and turn them once after 20 about halfway through the cooking and you'll have a nice caramelized brown edge where the plant, uh, where the root part was touching the bottom of the pan. Mm. And uh, they, it sweetens them up there. It can be a tasty snack or a wonderful side dish. Uh, one of the, my favorite dishes again is uh, using wild mushroom. And mm. I'm a big, big fan of mushrooms because they're really good for us as well. And we, we as humans probably don't eat enough of them. And they're so tasty. I mean, just, you yeah. know, very umami sort of salty flavor, natural in nature, um, and so beneficial nutritionally. Yeah, I uh, I wrote down that uh, it would be cool to roast these in sunflower oil, because then it would be a truly sunflower meal. I agree, that would be really cool. Now, this one, the tubers it's it's one of those things where you want to harvest in a way after the frost because when the frost kisses the tubers it's kind of like carrots you know once the right. frost hits the carrots are supposed to somehow taste better which yeah. makes sense because in the past we've talked about you know when it's like a tuber sort of food crop once the frost hits that plant is kind of salvaging energy and putting all these nutrients into the roots so that's you know even better for us for flavor and nutrients and that sort of thing exactly that's exactly right is it's putting all of its keeping all of its energy in that tuber for next year and of course us humans mm. are stealing it from the plant or you could look at it as the plants offering it up to us you know and i mentioned that second season okay so you harvest some in the fall maybe in late mid to late november after hard freezes and i'll just cut the plant back before i dig it you know i cut it back to like ankle high stubs so it's easier mm. to get at them and harvest you know and uh, just compost the tops but uh, then in the spring we're talking once the soil thaws uh, right when I can get my trowel into the soil I'm harvesting those tubers in the spring so we're mm. talking sometime it, it could be early March depending on the winter we have mm. there's nothing more satisfying than going out into the garden <laughs> and scoring something out of the garden when nobody else has even sown their seed yet mm -hmm. maybe indoors they have right but yeah what uh, else is ready in march yeah nothing <laughs> not a whole lot <laughs> maybe, maybe a wild edible right yeah but but one thing i haven't mentioned either stephanie is the, the nutrition uh they're mm. a powerhouse um and mm. it's just you'll see that reoccurring theme with everything we're talking about today i really didn't talk about nutrition with spider wart because I haven't looked that up yet, but something tells me they are. Well, anyway, Jerusalem artichoke or, or the sunchoke, uh, nutrition-wise, uh, one cup of the sliced tuber, just one cup, folks, gives you 28% of your daily iron. Oh, and I think right. a lot of times people think they can't get iron from plants. 
you sure can. But these deep rooted plants like this is where we can get a good source of iron, like the lamb's quarters we were talking about, a good source of iron. 18% of your calcium, 10% of your vitamin C, all over a little, little over 100 calories, only 100 calories for 28% of your daily iron. That's that's a trip. That's that's wow. Mm. And they have a low glycemic index, uh, so they're great for diabetics as well. There's also looking at sunchokes as land regeneration. So when the soil has been so depleted, there's nothing left. Mm. Planting Jerusalem artichokes is a good way to restore um, the organic content in that soil. So uh, using it as a natural fertilizer, sort of nutrient equalizer yep. sort of purpose. Exactly. Mm. So you would grow this crop and then what we call green manure, chop it, or basically till it up or, you know, plow it or whatever mm. to, uh, you know, because otherwise, I mean. Till it in. Till it yeah. in, exactly. Yep. Yeah. You know, another thing too, Stephanie, we haven't talked about is if I don't have a way to confine this baby, can I grow it in a container? And sometimes people don't have garden space. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you know, you mm -hmm. can plant it on a deck or whatever, you know, five-gallon buckets. Um, you know, fill your containers with soil up to about two inches from the top and then plant the tubers in there four to six inches deep If you, if, if you're as you were planting any other garden. And then place that container in a sunny pot, water once mm -hmm. a week. Mm -hmm. And eventually, you're going to be able to harvest those tubers in the fall. Yeah. And if for anyone listening in, you know, if you are worried about, you know, if a plant is, uh, if you're looking up a plant, you're thinking of adding to the garden and it's, it's talked about as having invasive potential or being aggressive or being, uh, you know, spreading by rhizome aggressively, any sort of thing relating to that, you can grow it in a pot. And then mm -hmm. that way you're kind of, you're able to contain it. You're able to make sure it doesn't escape to where you don't want it to go. And you're still able to grow it and utilize it. Um, so I think that suggestion to grow, to grow this in a container, you know, like maybe even a whiskey barrel sort of situation is a good idea exactly. for this plant. And then you can harvest everything except for maybe a tiny little quarter of that container. So that way it can remultiply and refill out that pot for you so that you can just kind of keep it going. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah that's for it. Sure. And I thought this one would be a good candidate. So every now and then, you know, I used to, back in the day, I used to research all these creative garden design ideas and, and every now and then you'd see like some sort of flower or some, even like a cutting garden sort of situation where you'd grow like a circle garden in the middle of lawn just like a decorative ornamental circle shaped garden. Yeah, exactly. This exactly. would be a great one where you just, it's as simple as taking like some retaining wall blocks or some, some large cobblestones yeah. or something and just making a nice aesthetic circle shape, putting those tubers right in there. And then, you know, to harvest just, you know, 90%, 95% of what you got right. going in there, leave a single or two tubers or what, what have you. Right. And then letting that area refill out, you mow around it. It's it's not going to yep. get out of control or anything. And you've got an amazing prolific food crop that also exactly. gorgeous flowers. You know, more and more you're hearing about uh, food forests, right? Or using mm. public lands like Omaha permaculture, for example. And how do I get something like this in a permaculture type garden? 
you know, creating these island beds that you're talking about. So if you have a, a number of island beds, you know, one island bed could be Jerusalem artichoke. Another island bed could be um, spiderwort, right? Another island bed mm. could be lamb's quarters. So you have your your yard, your property. Uh, uh, in my in my perfect world brain, our parks <laughs> would have these things, and people are going out mm -hmm. to our parks and and foraging. But I know that's never going to fly. But still, a guy can dream, right? Mm -hmm. Community gardens. We can, you yeah, know, we can exactly. we can help gardens. suggest yeah. these ideas for community gardens because sure. there are those around, and more people are enthusiastic about helping to make those kinds of things possible. Amen. Amen. So, hey, this next plant is one you wanted to talk about: soapweed, uh, yucca yeah. glauca. Mm -hmm. Now, this one gorgeous in flower, just surprisingly beautiful, but also utilitarian. Um, I read that the fruit can be used raw or cooked. The flowers can be used raw or cooked. And the stems themselves can be cooked like asparagus. So this intrigues me because uh, yucca is one of those ones that I wasn't too familiar with. But, you know, every now and then you see one growing in, in someone's garden or, or you know, you see a picture of one online. You're like, wow, those flowers are really unique and, and really surprisingly aesthetic. Right. And to hear that also it's a utilitarian plant that we can forage is even more enticing. So what do you yeah, know about this one? Well, you know, it's funny because yucca, the the... It was called Adam's needle yucca, which mm -hmm. is yucca, yucca filamentosa. It was a species, I think, like more native to New Mexico. But gardeners, okay. gardeners were planting yucca that that Adam's needle yucca. Like it seems like it was in every yard back in the eighties, and uh, slowly but surely, people have taken them out. Um, some people complain I tried to dig it up and it just came back right away. And then I'm thinking, what did you do with the root? Did you use the root for anything? Oh, no, I just tossed it. I'm like, oh, man, because we can talk about the root here in a little bit. But anyway, uh, yeah, the, the flowering stalk is what they're referring to when they say you can eat the stalk. And uh, so the flowering stalk and on the Adam's needle or our native yucca uh, will get up to around three or four feet tall, usually around four feet tall and be gosh, an inch and a half thick at the base. So you can cut that, peel it and fry it, or you can roast it in the peel mm. and then peel it after you roast it and eat it as well. That I've never tried, but I've heard it's really good. So it's definitely something that intrigues me. I've eaten the, I've really the only thing I've done with yuck is eating the flowers fresh and there mm. may or may not be bitter. And I remember eating them for the first time going like, yuck, who would like this? And I learned I was harvesting the flowers too late you want to get them when they're just opening if you because they'll bloom for quite some time and basically you just sample one or two and it's really fun to eat a wild edible flower in front of somebody that has no idea it's edible to get that <laughs> get that look of shock Not on their face value yeah oh yeah it's awesome what uh, you ate it what are you doing but but sauteed yucca blossoms are are a big thing down in the desert southwest and in mexico um you okay. know where the species really really uh does its things so there's recipes online for that you know you basically separate the petals from the pistols and the stamens and you basically have these they're thick kind of the petals are kind of thickened if you've ever felt one before 
kind of thick and leathery, if you will. Um, but you you don't throw away those pistols and stamens. You just chop them up. Anyway, you saute those petals in olive oil. Uh, when they start to turn green, then you add the onions and cook over low heat until the onions are soft and translucent. And then you add a, a little uh, lemon juice, some pine nuts to it for a little crunch, some salt and pepper, and that's a classic sautéed yucca blossoms. I've also read where you can sauté them up and add them to egg dishes, mm. apparently really good egg dishes as well. Mm. <laughs> There's lots of recipes online. And who doesn't need an excuse to make an egg dish? Uh, yeah, exactly. Granted, my husband hates eggs. So <laughs> Yeah, isn't it weird so, to meet those uh... <laughs> there's, there's those people out there. There's those people. My son doesn't like eggs, never did. Uh yeah, to this day he still doesn't like eggs. Yeah. I myself love <laughs> eggs. So for me to have another reason to make an egg dish is exciting. Right. <laughs> um that's so cool that you can saute these flowers. Um, that just sounds wild. Sauteed yucca flowers and eggs. You wouldn't think of those two things as right together, but yet here we are. Yeah, and they will even use it. They'll use them for a taco filling, believe it or not, with onions and zucchini. So kind of a vegetarian wow. type taco. Uh, use them fresh on a green salad. You can dip them in fritter batter and fry them. Or again, chop them up and add them to scrambled eggs. And I think, again, you would cook the flowers first before you'd add them to your eggs. Mm. Um, yeah, really intriguing. Or, or, or a frittata type of thing or an omelet. Mm. Um, I wonder if someone could Google like a yucca frittata, if anything comes up recipe-wise. Yeah, right. Uh, okay, fine. You, you, you're gonna, you put me on the spot. Uh, yucca frittata. <laughs> yucca frittata. Um, Right. I wouldn't be surprised if it came up. Let's see. Yucca frittata. While you're looking that up, I actually read that the dried fruit from the yucca plant, the soapweed plant, can be used to make a hot chocolate-like beverage. That was the one bombshell thing to me because, you know, it's, it's going to be fall time. I love hot chocolate. I love anything mocha. So to read that I can use a native wildflower to make a hot chocolate-like beverage just sounded like heaven to me. It does. And that, that again, is a new one to me too, um, for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, it, it's, let's put it on our bucket list is, is basically. I know it. Me, yeah. <laughs> the problem we have there, Stephanie, is finding, a, a, you, you said it was a seed pod, right, that they use? Um, so it said, it said dried fruit. I've never actually grown yucca in my garden. So I'm assuming what the, the flower matures. Mm -hmm. and, and it forms a seed pod. Okay. So the problem you and I would have is if we lived out in the sand hills or in uh, the Pine Ridge of Nebraska, where the yucca rules, they have yuccas come out of their ears in, in ranch country mm -hmm. um, where they don't see it as a benefit, but some do because the cows will eat that flowering stem like it's ice cream. But anyway, um, that's where the yucca fruit forms from that flower, those pods to make this is where you'd have to collect it. Because here in the East, if we grow the yucca, the native yucca, the yucca glauca, it will 
pretty much never form seed pods. Why is that? Because there's a direct association with that plant, with this little tiny native moth. The yucca moth mm. is the only, the yucca moth and the yucca live uh, in concert to benefit each other. The yucca moth pollinates the plant and the plant provides uh, shelter for the yucca moth. But the mm. yucca moth doesn't just show up out of the blue. I've grown yucca glauca for years, never had a seed pod on it. And I was like, oh, because the moth isn't around. Because the moth isn't around here because we don't have yucca glauca out in our fields and pastures and things. Okay. If that makes sense. You know, and then the root itself, um, that's probably the most known use of yucca is uh, yucca. The native yucca is also called soapweed. And soapweed, I thought, okay, why would somebody name a plant soapweed? Well, Native Americans used it. Um, it, it lathers or it, um, it, it has a, it, it's a, it's a natural foamer. Um, once oh. you pound the root, uh, you pound the root in, with water and it creates a foaming agent that's packed with antioxidants and anti-inflammatory ingredients that's suitable for anyone looking to get a deep clean on their hair. That's fascinating. I just can't believe all the uses for this stuff. I'm just blown away right? all the time by it. <laughs> um now this next one cattail broadleaf uh broadleaf cattail so typha latifolia i know yeah. you wanted to talk about this one um and and Kay young does she have this one in her book wild seasons yes she sure does and uh she has one called cattail pollen or like golden pancakes using the pollen of cattail oh, yeah. And, and so cattails, um, there's a recipe online for cattail pollen spaghetti with wild oregano from a good, uh, a good site to follow folks online is the uh, hunter gatherer or, or uh, forager chef is another great one. He's got a recipe for marinated cattail shoots. Um, the cattail shoots is the stem part of the cattail. But I can tell you, I ate those as a kid. That's one of the first forage things I ate because my uncle would harvest those and, and make the cattail shoots. And I thought they were tasty even as a kid. And so that's saying something, I think. Um, the whole plant is edible. Now, is the whole plant palatable? Not necessarily, but there's some great recipes online. Uh, Yule Gibbons is one of the first people that touted cattail shoots from his famous 1950s book. Uh, but... You know, you can have cattail shoots, cattail pollen, heck, even the fluffy part, the seeds, you know, when cattails fluff out, you can actually harvest the cattail fluff and make recipes with that too. That's a new one to me. I have not done that yet, but it's on my wish list to do. There's even a recipe online, folks. Look this up, cattail pulled pork. So that's basically <laughs> using the cattail fluff and you can trick your loved one into thinking they ate pulled pork when they actually ate cattail fluff. Apparently, it is really, really good because a friend of mine made it, fed it to her uh, husband, who is definitely not a, a plant nerd like us, um, and basically goes, oh, that's really good. And then he, she told him, actually, that's not pork at all. And he's like, what? 
Yeah, that's made from cat tail fluff. Make your make your vegan friends happy. Yeah, exactly. And make imitation pulled pork with cattail fluff and and put some sriracha barbecue sauce on there from Trader Joe's. Yes. And and you'll have a really good vegan imitation meat meal. Right. That'll that'll make everyone happy, not just your vegan friends. Wow, that's fascinating. You know, I when I read that the pollen could be added to pancakes, that sounded absolutely wild and bananas to me. Oh, yeah. Did you say cattail pollen spaghetti? I have to backtrack. That is just... Right, right, yeah. So you're basically taking the, the pollen and mixing it in with your cooked spaghetti, much like, you know, so it basically just makes your spaghetti look yellow. Yeah, this dude describes it online as it's a it is shockingly vibrant canary yellow color wow. with a mild floral aroma and just a little hint of nuttiness. It sounds like some bougie fancy thing at like, you know, some really, really local high-end sort of restaurant, cattail pollen spaghetti. It's right? a fancy <laughs> thing that you can actually make at home to impress your people. The pollen contains about 14 to 22% carbs, somewhere around 17% protein, and anywhere from about 2 to 7% fat. So it's a high protein content that you're adding to your flour to basically wow. to beef up the flour. And also it's going to get, it's kind of like the North American version of saffron. You know, we add saffron or turmeric for that awesome color. Uh, that's where you would add the cattail pollen. And you'd have to read up on that, folks, to say, okay, when do I collect it? How do I collect it? Mm -mm. And you would just type in how to harvest cattail pollen. And uh, I'm, I'm confident there will be a YouTube video of it on there. You'd be surprised how one cattail shoot, one cattail top, I swear, has a teaspoon of pollen in it. Wow. It's got a lot of pollen. Yeah, I mean, just just the idea of, you know, for instance, you know, we talked about turmeric before as a colorant, you know, just this idea of using something as a colorant that's also high protein, that's natural, uh, something that grows in the wild locally. It's really cool to me. In the past, you know, when we've talked about this one, I know you referred to it as nature's bread basket or you refer yes. to someone referring to it as nature's bread basket right exactly and that 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 actually was taken from Ewell Gibbons uh book gosh off the top of my head I'd have to google it to find out what the name of his book is but mm -hmm. it's a classic forager book that was written in the 50s anybody who's interested in foraging should put that one on their wish list to get mm -hmm. I don't know if it's still available just know that cattails being a wetland species can absorb a lot of bad stuff too. So mm. our waterways are not necessarily the cleanest things on the planet anymore. And so it worries me a little bit about harvesting the shoot of a cattail as you were talking about in some sort of waterway that I don't trust what's going into that waterway, whether it's atrazine from a, a nearby mm. uh, ag related field or runoff from uh, a city parking lot or whatever the case may be. I think, um, unfortunately, cattails that were as popular back in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s, we have to be a little more cautious today, unfortunately, because we pollute a lot of our waterways. Not that they weren't back then, too. Right. But I think the best way of, of doing cattails 
is just like we were talking about with the sunchokes, growing them in an isolated container. And mm. you can actually make little mini water gardens at home or bog gardens at home and plant cattails that way. Because the broadleaf cattail, our native cattail, the broadleaf is being overrun and overtaken by an introduced cattail called narrowleaf cattail. Narrowleaf okay. cattails, not from North America. Somebody had the bright idea of using it for, I, I don't know, wetland mitigation something and now this narrowly cattail is super aggressive it's snuffing out our native and is that a bad thing well sure if you want your native one around because i think the the native broadleaf has more food attributes than the narrow leaf so that's why i'm telling you that folks is if you're just going to any old cattail patch you might be looking at the introduced one and i okay. don't haven't done enough reading up on it to see you know, is that another one we can also eat with the same abandon as a, as the broadleaf cattail? And this might be one where, you know, people can grow in the garden using creative methods. So I wanted to get with Na my friend Nancy Scott, because in her garden, she was telling me she recycles like old children's wading pools and she yes. actually sinks them into the ground to be or to be able to grow these you know kind of wet seeking plants that that really like wetter soil and and to be a little water bogged from time to time so that would be maybe a good way or one of the ways you could mimic sort of a, a natural setting that these plants would be happy in and would kind of thrive in a home garden we just got to be a oh, little man. creative Exactly. I think the kiddie pool would be a perfect use because, you know, they're often those kiddie pools are what, at least four by four, if not five by five feet, right? Or five feet. Yeah. Of you can get a boatload of cattails in there. Easy to take care of because you're basically growing a swamp, right? <laughs> you're, yeah. you're filling it with soil and then filling it with water and letting the plants do their thing. And you could put some rich organic soil in there to get some, some super cattails. Yeah, here's the quote, supermarket of the swamp is what uh, wow. cattails are referred to. Get this, you can take the root, the root can be made into a flower, and they can also be eaten fresh. You can just basically peel them and, and uh, cut them thinly sliced into a salad. Uh, you can pickle them. You can also pickle the shoots, um, cattail shoot quick pickles, uh, cattail heart and tomato salads, cattail rhizome salad with smoked trout and chickweed. Um, wow. So the stalk, the pollen. Yeah, there's there's stuff online, folks, that like four ways to eat cattails, you know, and, and just all sorts of fun stuff with the, uh, even the immature and still green male flowers can be boiled for 10 or 15 minutes and very nice sauteed. I've done that before. I didn't find them horribly palatable uh when i ate the still green male flowers i just thought i mean it smelled like corn kind of tasted like corn but mm. it was just too, too dry in my book so i think now, i did something wrong these are actually related to corn is that right they are yep cattails are are uh, d distantly related to corn mm -hmm. wow well i'm i'm just super excited to try all this new stuff that i haven't tried before it's definitely a, a treasure trove that can be tapped again and again. There's just an infinite amount of possibilities almost when it comes to these indigenous plants. I'm so glad that you were here with us again today. So thank you for all your expertise. My pleasure. 
I'm excited for our next chat. There's there's so much yet to talk about. Well, yeah, it's a pleasure. In fact, when I come on, you know, even the, some of the things that I've eaten before, I'm like, oh man, I need to get that again. Or so it inspires me equally to uh, get back out there. Yeah, right on. I'm looking forward to next time. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. See what see what plants we come up with. It'll be fun. Thanks, Stephanie. Thank you for tuning in to the Plant Native Nebraska podcast. If you need notes on anything mentioned in today's episode, check our website, plant-native-nebraska.captivate.fm for more info. I want you to know you've made this podcast special just by listening in. But if you found real value in today's talk, you can both financially support future episodes and dive deeper into the topics we share by finding us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash plant native Nebraska. Thanks for listening. I also wanted to put out a special call to action to our listeners to assist at the pollinator plantings at Mason Park in Bellevue. You can visit the Bellevue Native Plant Society webpage at bellevuenativeplants.org, click on the local volunteers needed tab, and scroll down to see all of our workdays. See you there. And as always, thanks for listening.